If you've got your Bibles, get them open, um, and that so you can sort of see where we're at. It's always good. I love to just be able to write stuff down, pen stuff in. You know, when it when it when it strikes you as you're going along. That song we sang. Um, what's that song called? Save your. What's it called? King. king. What the the line? Servant and king. Like before Jesus is our king, our lives are surrendered to Him. The only way that happens is if He's He's served you. <laughs> That's extraordinary. That the first and the last, the maker of my soul, king of the universe, decided that what, what he would do with his time is come and serve me, that I might find him. It's extraordinary. Great song. Thanks, guys. Hey, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get at it and get into this, this uh, passage today. Loving God, as we have heard your word this morning, would it work in us? so that we wouldn't uh, merely be hearers of this word, but, but we would be doers of it. Not merely hearers of it, still capable, uh, still unmoved by it, not transformed by it, still capable of uh, practicing sin without feeling the conviction of it. But would it work in us like a mirror, revealing our own need for grace, making us people of justice and mercy toward our brothers and sisters in Christ who who we share a noble name with. And it's in that noble name uh, that we pray this morning, that you would, you would work and minister to us as uh, we get into your word this morning. Amen. Well, uh, you'd be familiar maybe by now that we're moving through the book of James. We're in a little series journeying through this letter and it gets its title, James, because that's who wrote it. James is the half-brother of Jesus. They grew up together. Uh, they shared a bedroom, shared a toilet, shared, I don't know, bath- bathrooms and, and basketballs and all that kind of stuff. Probably not basketballs, but you know what I mean. Uh, so if there's anyone who kind of knows uh, whether or not Jesus has some hidden agenda, whether there's some kind of scandal behind his claims, uh, whether he's lived a lie, he's not who he claimed to be, uh, you know, it's going to be James. Often, uh, you know, high-profiled, uh, influential people, um, after, after they die, and, and, G- and Jesus is universally recognized as one of the most influential people that ever lived, uh, which is extraordinary given some people don't think he lived at all. But after influential people die, sometimes someone comes along and they write uh, a story, a tell-all story about the secret lives of this person that only they had Uh, privy to that only they could know because they were so close to them and James is is someone like that James is one of those people who who if he wanted to out Jesus about some kind of shady thing that he'd done in his life he'd be able to do it so after Jesus has departed this world not dead but but very much alive James's biography his tell-all story about his half-brother Jesus reads like this Like God, Jesus is worthy of all of my worship and all of my servitude. Jesus is Lord and Christ. That's what he he writes about Jesus, which is an extraordinary statement, given that only a few years earlier, he was trying to convince Jesus that he should stick to his earthly uh, father's business of carpentry and get rid of these ideas, get rid of these claims that he was actually here to be about his heavenly father's business. James has gone from being a skeptical, biological brother of Jesus to a sincere and a sold-out servant of Jesus. 
and is now uh, and is now at this time writing this letter that we're reading. And as he writes it, he 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 holds the position of of this revered and esteemed uh, pastor of the first ever Christian community, the Church at Jerusalem. That's 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 who James is, and and how he's writing this letter. And it is James's pastoral heart for his people, uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that sees him write a a very practical letter, a kind of a health check, if you like, on the Christian life and practice. Unlike Paul, but not, not in opposition to him, James does not restate the gospel in his letter, but rather he exposes and addresses what a life transformed by the gospel should look like. James writes a diagnostic letter to check for the signs and the symptoms of genuine faith. And the key analytical, the key kind of medical device, if you like, that he uses to try and work out whether that's going on is works. Works are evidential of genuine faith. They're not instrumental of genuine faith. They don't save you. They don't make you healthy. But they are evidence of salvation. They are evidence of spiritual health. James is saying, if you claim to have genuine faith in Christ, then your life should mirror the life of Christ. And a diagnostic tool for that that he's going to explore in our passage today is this thing called the royal law. The law of love. A law that King Jesus demanded, wasn't a suggestion, he demanded that his followers live it out. And James picks up on that to a degree at the end of chapter 1. He says, genuine faith, while not limited to these things, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And that's kind of like an Old Testament shorthand for seeking justice and mercy uh, for the helpless and the lowly. Genuine faith must include these activities as they mirror the intention of God's heart. A faith without such symptoms is dead, leads to death, has no genuine love of God and love for people in it. It's dead. You are dead. James, in his pastoral heart, is also saying there's a way in which we use works to deceive our hearts. Preferential works deceive our hearts into thinking that we have genuine faith. There are activities that we do that make us look like Christians, but there's no genuine love uh, for our neighbor and no ultimate love of God that motivates uh, and guides and drives them. They're driven by selfish motives. They are works of partiality and they expose a divided heart and it causes all kind of carnage uh, in the church. That's why James is going after it. Timothy Keller says in his book, uh, Gospel in Life, a merely religious person who believes God will, will favor him because of his morality and his respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am. And so can anyone else. That's the language of the moralist, the moralist heart. I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal to all other people. That's the language of the Christian heart. A sensitive, social conscious and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of grace. 
And so here in our passage today, James lovingly outs the kind of preferential moralistic behavior that causes destruction as sin. And he outs it in the church. And he invites us into something richer, something deeper, something that triumphs and leads to life. And James starts with the what. In this passage, we have a what, we have a couple of whys, and then we have a how. Uh, the what's always easiest, you know, like, don't do that. It's easy to say, isn't it? <laughs> My brothers, and we saw how, how that, that phrase that he loves to use, that he starts with a shorthand phrase for James, that means it's a way that he describes uh, men and women, brothers and sisters who have, a, who have a shared and common experience of the grace of Jesus in their life. This is, he's saying, you, you Christians out there who share the same experience of Jesus as I do. Show no partiality as you hold out the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then James gives us this case study, this hypothetical case study, if you like, in verses 2 to 4 of two visitors uh, to a church. And one's kind of dressed like Harry Styles or maybe Mick Jagger, depending on where you are in the you know, chronological line of life. Um, he, he comes in and he has importance and influence, uh, splendor draped all over him. The other looks like they crawled out of that little bin corral uh, down there at the bottom of the church and they reek uh, of their own feces and they reek of discarded refuge. That's what shabby, if you've got the ESV there, shabby means in this verse, literally. They have poverty and destitution draped all over them. And based on their appearances, the ushers, you know, we've got a greeting team here. Uh, the ushers, this is where you get mentioned in the Bible, by the way, Nick and our greeting team, show not so much favoritism to the splendidly dressed person as discrimination against the person in the shabby clothes. And James is saying, don't do that. That's the what. Don't do that. Don't, don't have this partiality, this favoritism, uh, this discrimination. That's a sin. A sin of the heart that violates the royal law. It exposes your heart is not gripped with the same kind of relational concern uh, that God has for the poor. You are more like judges who pervert the course of justice and withhold mercy. Strong stuff that James is ripping into here. Gets even stronger. And while James cites a particular case, he says a case that, that he has in front of us, the word uh, for partiality that he uses is actually plural, partialities, all, all manner of, of, of ways of discriminating against people. So it's, it's not merely limited to the appearance of someone. That's just the case study uh, that we're looking at here. And here's what James is saying. I kind of adapted this from something a guy called Matt Chandler uh, wrote. I didn't think he'd done a good enough of job of it, so I kind of tidied it up. Uh, he'll never know I took a swipe at him because, you know, whatever. Um, he says this, Do not withhold or give glory Love, affection, hospitality, friendship, mercy, kindness, or service to people based upon the value scales that you find in a fallen world, in hierarchical cultures. Don't rank people with the same kind of influencer, follower kind of mentality that enslaves our culture to discrimination. Don't, don't be doing that. 
No, the way Christians, the way we as Christians treat each other isn't determined by economic class, age, clothing, weight, gender, skin color, or even their attractiveness. That's how we are to be. We are, we are not to be operating with, with favoritism, with, with discrimination. That's the what. James says, don't do it. And listen, it's not as easy as it sounds. Like we all naturally gravitate. We all tend to drift towards people we're comfortable with. People in the same circles. People with the same educational class, intellectual class, whatever. Collingwood supporters. We find them out in the footpath. That kind of thing. James is saying, based on the commands of Jesus, those kinds of discriminations, those kinds of relational inhibitors, those kind of favoritisms should not exist in a community of genuine faith. The ability to make these improper uh, divisions in a church reflects an improper division harbored in our hearts, in the hearts of believers. Don't be like that. Don't do that. Shouldn't exist. That's the what. And then James kind of goes on to the whys. You know, why? Why? Why, not? why don't do that? And why is always a more complex kind of uh, question or a complex kind of description? It's easy to give a what. You know, don't do this, don't do that. It's when you have to give a why for the what that it kind of takes more time. But our boy James takes the time because what he knows is that children need a good why or they simply get kind of bitter or discouraged about the what. So James says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, my beloved uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice how he's added in there, beloved. You who have been loved. Like you didn't get here unless you were loved. That's what hit me about that song as we were singing it. Servant and king. Like he didn't get to be my king until he served me and and I saw him like that. You see, he loved me first. And so I'm beloved. My dear beloved brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those whom love him? Why do we love him? Because he loved us first. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in, in Corinthians 1, 26-27, just kind of look around this place. It's full of people who, according to worldly standards, are not wise, are not powerful, uh, haven't come from a noble birth. God's family is made up of the shabby. And it makes no sense to the world, but it demonstrates God's heart and His mercy to redeem and to make glorious, clothed with His splendor, what we discriminate against, what we discard, what we overlook. Yeah? Like, who can remember... It's probably made like illegal now. It's probably jailable. I don't know. Offense, but uh, PE class. I'm not even sure we use that phrase anymore. PE class at school. When you had to pick two teams, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was always the two best athletes that were made captains. The coolest kids in, in the school. And being a good athlete made you cool at school. It's that simple. And they went as captains. And then with kind of ruthless discrimination, they just made their way through the class, picking teams based on schoolyard value. That's how it worked. And, and you know, if the class had an odd number, that poor dude who was left at the end, he's just got to be a goalpost or something or other or, or score. We, you know, we can't have unbalanced teams. Yeah, right? 
Yeah, it's growing up in the 80s, school in the 80s. I was always small. I was the smallest kid at school. And so, and I had kind of social issues, you might say. So I was one of those little last dregs uh, all the time. Unless the game required, you know, harming the other side. Then I kind of grew in value a little bit, but uh, that's another story. (laughs) But hey, it begins in the playground. And it sticks with us and it stays with us. And this is, how we, this is how we create teams. This is how we build businesses or communities when we want them to succeed, when, we, when, we want, when there's something on the line. This is how we do it. This is the culture, the air we breathe. But it is not how God creates, not how he makes a community. He has no discrimination against the shabby, the poor. And when you dishonor them... Uh, you dishonor God. You reveal that you don't understand the gospel that brought you in here in the first place. You've forgotten it. You've forgotten how, like a mirror, the gospel revealed to you your own shabbiness. Such an attitude stands in contradiction to God's own approach, which is to honor the poor. God has a special concern for the poor. Now, that's not to say that the church is only for the, for the shabby, only for the poor, but it is to say that the way you come into the church is through seeing your poverty, through seeing your need. And the literal poor tend to be uh, more able to see that than the, other, than, than the rich. They're able to see their poverty. They're able to see their need. They're more kind of predisposed to it than the privileged, let's say. That's why Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. They've, they've got more to lose, so they think. The poor kind of serve as a visual aid to, to where all people are before God. It's emblematic of the gospel. When the lowly come to Christ, because Christ himself made himself lowly in order to come to us, to find us, to save us. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 8. Yeah? God builds his team based on his awesomeness, not ours. God invites us into his family based on the sufficiency of Jesus, not ours. We've got nothing to offer in this space. Before God, we're all shabby. We're all dressed in filthy robes. Whether those robes are sort of soaked in the stench of self-righteousness and, and moralness and goodness and your own self-works or whether they're um, drenched in the stench of uh, self-discovery and irreligiosity if that's a word. God moves towards all of us with impartiality, towards all people the same. It's just that the poor are more receptive to it. And the scope of God's heart is seen in the inclusion of the poor, which the world would normally, they'd feel pity for them, but include them, esteem them. That's why you should do likewise. That's why you should be... Likewise, And when you don't, you judge with evil intentions and not the heart of God. Partiality is anti-gospel. It puts in place, it builds back up the barriers that the gospel actually pulled down. And then James turns the heat up and he says this, but you have dishonored the poor man. So from a hypothetical scenario to an accusation where they've actually treated a brother and a sister in Christ with discrimination in order to over the approval of the rich. 
James's point here is, is like, where's the logic in that? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? But because approval by the world means more to you than conformity to the royal law of loving God with whole heart and loving neighbor without discrimination, because you want to be accepted and applauded, you know, by the rich, you think that progress is actually attached to worldly influence, you're prepared to dishonor the poor to make sure that these influential people feel welcome and okay and good. Because, of course, they've got more to offer a church, yeah? The poor, by the way, are not merely uh, people who, like there's different ways of viewing the poor, but one thing we must keep in mind, the poor are not merely those that are without money, but somebody who has humbled themselves, made themselves poor in spirit, do you know what I mean, before God and seen their need of his grace. And James has pushed that button by, by, by calling them his beloved brothers, like you all live in that space. You overlook that brother and sister and prefer to uh, form relationships with, with people who, who make our lives a misery, who mock the name of Jesus that, you, that made you uh, who you are in the first place. James is not trying to engender resentment towards the rich, but more to point out the irony involved in this of Christians kind of pinning their hopes on, cozying up to them as though the future of the church depends on their presence here. Again, the captain of this team is not without his own resources. James seems to be hinting uh, that fawning over the resources of the rich, rather than depending on the provision of God and his gospel, gives the rich a means of belittling what's at the core of our faith, rather than seeing the power of it, rather than seeing the beauty of it. Favoritism actually demeans these things. James is not saying, well, you know, just go and take all that favoritism off the rich and put it onto the poor either. Jesus never said that. Jesus never said, you know, love only the poor, hate the rich. No, he said, pray for them, actually. Like, care for them, go after them, pray for them. Show no partiality. Like, everybody needs this gospel. And the final why that James gives is discrimination against the poor violates the demand of love for the neighbor. The centerpiece of Jesus' reinterpretation of the, the law, the word of God. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and convicted as a lawbreaker. It's because Jesus put this command at the front, at the center uh, of things, that James can call it the royal law, like the king himself repeatedly emphasized this uh, description of the law. It's Jesus' most quoted um, quote, if you like, of the Old Testament. James goes on to make the point that the law itself is a cloak. It's, it's, it's a whole, it's a complete thing. And if you pull on one thread of that garment, you ruin the whole thing. Keeping some laws does not let you off breaking others. The one who commits adultery, who never commits adultery, sorry, cannot use that as a defense for when they commit murder. You break the law in one area, the whole law condemns you. The same logic applies if you only love those who are easy to love. Yeah, sure, you're showing love to this group of people, good on you, but you're not showing it to this group of people. 
those who you find attractive, those who you find easy to love. If you're doing that, you haven't kept the royal law. And so it condemns you. It outs you as not having genuine faith. On the one, it's, uh, it outs you as not having genuine faith, uh, as, as not yourself having encountered the mercy of God. Our intentional inclusion towards the poor is evidence that we have actually encountered uh, the mercy of God. Part of the visible outworking of a true Christian community is compassion for the needy, to be moved by the distress of the most destitute and provoked into taking action to help them, to move toward them, to be intentional in that. The evidence that Christ is at the centre of a community is is seen in the mercy that it shows to those around them. Mercy defines the gospel. Jesus loved us even when we were unlovable. Is that not it? Even when we were shabby in his sight, Jesus moves towards us in a way uh, we did not deserve, gave us a noble name that we could never have achieved ourselves, showered us with blessings that we could never have earned. So having been treated in this way, Having encountered God's mercy in our lives, surely we will instinctively, progressively, not perfectly, but progressively live this out ourselves. Start to treat others the same way. There's no way to make human beings merciful than for them themselves to be gripped by mercy. James in no way expects that we will be perfect at this. That's not what he's claiming. But what he does mean, what he is saying, is that in the absence of this is evidence that our faith is simply not genuine. Christians should be making progress in this, pursuing this, imperfectly at times, but intentionally. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful because they're going to be shown mercy. And James flips that and says, judgment without mercy will be shown to, shown to anyone who has not been merciful. It's a strong warning, but it's also an invitation too because James finishes this whole little section with mercy triumphs over judgment. We deserve judgment. We deserve God's judgment, but we got mercy. Like that's our experience. Where did God's mercy triumph over judgment on our behalf? Like, where did that take place? How did that happen? On the cross. On the cross, the mercy of God towards sinners triumphed over judgment that awaited the shabby, that awaited the self-righteous, the moralist, that awaited the irreligious. Those who uh, were self-determining in their own hearts in various ways don't need God. James began this whole section by saying, Christians are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, my brothers, you know, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And that is why we simply can't show favoritism. 
This phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, while incredibly loaded with divinity, sovereignty, biblical fulfillment, uh, and worship, is, is quite a common way that Jesus gets described in the New Testament. But what is not common, in fact, it's unique, it only actually happens here, is the added phrase, the Lord of glory. What is, what is this glory that, that James has added on? How is Jesus the Lord of glory? The phrase is actually quite ambiguous, which is why there's so many different translations of where the word sits in the sentence. Is it theological glory? The glory of substance, as the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. Uh, he's of the same glory of God. Uh, the glory that Jesus alluded to, that he was returning to when he, when he prayed in John 17? Is it glory that emerged out of the death and the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus actually prayed about it in John 17 as well? Glory that Paul writes about in Romans and Corinthians. The glory seen in how Jesus met the just judgment of sin and at the same time loved those who gave him no reason to love them. That's how the glory of God was manifest. And the answer is yes, all of that. But even more, the glory of Jesus is effectual. Like it, it's done something. Jesus shared his glory with those who had no glory, who had no standing before God. So as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, we are being transformed into the same image, the image like Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. That's what's going on in the Christian. Or in Romans 5, through faith in Him, we have access to the grace in which we stand, now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, being like Jesus. Jesus has made you an object of, of glory, a receiver of glory, a receiver of mercy, a person with a noble name, a person with a name that is shared with Jesus. You are being transformed from shabby to splendid. That's what's going on. Here is where we find the how. This is the how. This is the power. This is the motivation, the transforming grace of the Christian life, of love for our neighbor that has no favoritism. We ourselves are being transformed by experiencing the glory of Jesus in our lives, the mercy of Jesus in our lives. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So remember the mercy shown to you. Remember where you were when he found you. And as you do, that just frees you up to extend that to others. Does it not? Like you don't need to put anyone down or build yourself up anymore. You, you've been built up. It means you can never look at another brother or sister in Christ without seeing the glory of Christ in them. Like, Do you get the weight of that? You can't look across this room and see another brother and sister in Christ without seeing the glory of Christ in it. C.S. Lewis has got this awesome quote. It goes forever, so I couldn't put it in here, but I might put it on my Facebook page or something. And it also means that you can never move toward another, a neighbor without seeing the possibility of the glory of Christ in them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again. Uh, 
for this book of James, like it scorches our hearts with its truth. And it, and it kind of scorches us with its rawness. Uh, it's going after our souls. But, but it also just lifts us up uh, with grace and the beauty of your love for us. And our prayer is that as we encounter you, as we encounter the servant who would become our king, <laughs> that that would start to just transform us into people who are like you. Natural born enemies who become brothers and sisters. People who then go out and just love the world around us. And as we do that, rather than mock the church, they can't help but say, boy, oh boy, we may not agree with them, but man, we're so glad they're around. Would that be our song? Would that, would, would that be our vision? You know, would our vision of life be a vision that's captured by you and then lived out uh, in our day-to-day lives and in our community here? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.